You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Here's the problem with daylight savings time is that no one tells my kids that we gain an hour of sleep. And so they just end up waking up at the same time, and now I'm up. So, well, welcome to Fort Myers Community Church. Thanks for being here this morning. My name is Bill Vecchio. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm excited to dive in. So we're going to look at the whole life of Sarah, and I just want to give us a little heads up. She has a name change in the middle of her story. So sometimes I'm going to be saying Sarai, and sometimes I'm going to be saying Sarah. Same person, all right? Um, Has anybody heard of Iramadi Mangama? Anybody heard of that name? So Iramani Mangama was a woman who is the oldest woman on record in contemporary age to give birth to twin girls. So on September 5th, 2019, Iramati gave birth at the age of 73. So sometimes it's hard to wrap our minds around, like the, the physical toll that it takes for a woman to give birth not only to one child, but to twins is crazy. But then once you can get past that piece, you actually have to raise those kids. Like the dirty diapers, the late nights, the incessant, mommy, 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 mommy. Like like you got to now have the energy to do that. But in scripture, we actually see somebody who is older, a woman named Sarah. She tackles this challenge empowered by a promise that through her, the world would be blessed. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're in this series, Forgiven Failures. We're talking about people's stories, their failures, and how God redeemed them in spite of their failures. So Sarai's story begins in Genesis 12. She is a barren, unhelpful liar who distrusted God and became bitter, jealous, and a harsh woman. Sound pretty intense? Does that sound harsh on my part to even say those things? But that's her failure. That's what she did, yet, yet, yet God still used her to change the world. See, when we're talking about sins like this, being unhelpful liar, distrusting God, being bitter, jealous, harsh, like, that sounds really intense, but we have to understand that we can't belittle sin. I think that our tendency is to belittle sin, and when we belittle sin, we miss the magnitude of the gospel. We have a group of men that are walking through uh, some discipleship and leadership development called Aspire, and we were hanging out after one uh, the other night, and Charlie Ruck said um, these three words, and I thought it was so beautiful, because he says, what we tend to do, our tendency with sin is to minimize, to rationalize, and to justify our sin. Anybody else? No, okay, just me. Thank you. All right. I'm the only rationalizer here. But here's the overview of Sarah's life, because what we're going to see in her story, although she has sinned, God redeems her. 
So Genesis 11.30, we're going to kind of be going through the story fast. This is nine chapters. I'm going to cover nine chapters today. So we'll be out of here by about two o'clock. Here we go. Genesis 11, verse 30. Sarai was barren, and she had no child. This word barren here is not just that she was incapable for a season. It actually meant that she was incapable. This was a permanent word used in that day to say that she was, was barren. See, my wife and I, we actually experienced a season of barrenness. And I know that we have people within our church that, that either experienced a season of barren, barrenness or they're still in a season where they are struggling to get pregnant, even though they desire this. And that's a hard season to be in. It's, it's exhausting, it's taxing, and you're praying, and you're seeking the Lord, and you're saying, God, we desire to have children, but it's in, we are what feels like incapable of this. And Sarah sat in that, not for a few years, not for a few decades, but for 60 years. She had already gone through menopause. She had already stopped the ability to potentially ovulate and have children. Like, like she sat in this barrenness in a sense of permanency. And so when she's hearing these things, it just brings angst to her heart. And so in Genesis 12, God calls Abram her husband. He says, go to the place I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And in verse Chapter 12, verse 3, he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through your offspring. Here we see a, the first connection from Abraham to the Messiah, Jesus. At this point, Abraham is about 75 years old. Sarah, about 65 years old. Sarah knew that God made this promise to her husband, and that this promise was also hers. But all of a sudden, she felt the weight of this idea of, I am incapable. And I'm certain knowing that she was barren called, caused all sorts of emotions in her. My wife and I were, was, were talking about this on our car ride yesterday. We were talking about this, this feeling probably that she might have had of worthlessness, of, of letting her husband down, even letting God down, because she felt like she couldn't accomplish or complete what God had said. I think all of these things that we're about to read are failures that we can relate to. And my hope is as we look at Sarah's story, we see our story, and we realize that no matter what our story is today, no matter what we're bringing in here, because we're all bringing in something, in case you didn't know that, like, welcome to church, you're bringing in some sort of sin. That's who we are. We're sinners, and we need God for our salvation. So we all have these, so let's, let's look at them and relate to them. So here's the first failure that we're seeing here. She is an unhelpful liar. Let's look at Genesis 12, 10 through 20. So 
Now God says to Abraham and his family, go to where I'll show you. Does he tell them where to go? No, he just says go. So they go. They pick up their stuff. They get their cattle and their family, and they go. They take a bunch of people with them, and, and they're, they're fairly wealthy at this point. They have a lot of cattle. They have some extended family that are coming with them. Their nephew, Lot, who we're going to be talking about next week, is coming with them. And they go, and they take off, and they start journeying. And there's a famine that happens, and so they end up going to a place called Egypt. Abraham was really scared that they were going to look upon his wife because his wife was beautiful, and they were going to kill him and take his wife. And so Abraham comes up with a scheme. He says, hey, listen, by the way, we're going to travel with this land. You're pretty. I'm not. They're going to kill me. And so well, he doesn't say I'm not, but... Um, and they're going to take you. So instead of them killing me, why don't we just say you're my sister? Because then, and what happened back then is for family members, they would actually purchase, if you will. That sounds wrong. But they would give money to the family in order to take that woman as their bride. And says, so let's go into this place and, and say you're my sister. And maybe I'll be blessed and, and then we'll be okay and no one's going to die and, and all's good. But that's not the role that... God gives the wife in Scripture. In Genesis 2, we see that God creates man, and he said it's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to create for him a helper. That word helper there is the word that AJ talked about a few weeks ago, azer, which means um, th this, this person that is going to come and help, and it's actually uh, symbolizing like, like, almost like a war hero, like someone who's going to come and help man and come alongside him. It's not this subservient role, but it's actually this, this completion role where you're going to come along and help accomplish the mission, the vision that God has for this family. And it's actually a word that's attributed to God in Hosea 13.9, that he is our azer, that he helps us in our time of need. So this is a big deal that God calls a woman to be his azer. Paul writes in, in Ephesians 6 that wives should submit and respect their husband. You know what's not helpful and what's not submissive is for Sarah to go along with the scheme. For Sarah to hear her husband and say, hey, let's lie and distrust in God for him, his protection, instead, let's come up with our own way of getting this done and protecting ourselves. And so, it's not helpful for her, as a helper, needed to step up and help her husband in this moment of weakness and sin. What she should be doing is pointing him back to Jesus, pointing him back to God, and encouraging him not to be afraid of their circumstances, but to trust in their God, because God has a plan for their life, and God told them to go there, and then God has promised that th through their offspring, the world will be blessed. So God has a plan, but, but in that moment, her husband is disbelieving the plan that God has for them, and as his helper, she should be coming alongside him and reminding him, no, 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 God has got us, God is going to protect us, but instead, she's like, okay. I'll say I'm your sister. Listen, if you're, you're driving with your husband and a cop goes and pulls him over for speeding and he looks over you and says, hey, stuff that sweater in your shirt and start screaming, say you're pregnant and we're on the way to the hospital. Guess what? It is not helpful for you to stuff a sweater in your shirt and start screaming. No, we need to point to the truth. Now, there are consequences for our actions and so you may get a ticket in that moment, but it's not better to lie. So in this moment, she is being unhelpful. And I know this is a silly example, 
But it's not helpful to watch your husband struggle with addiction and remain quiet. It's not helpful to be in an affair and, and have it be known in your marriage and not talk about it. Students, it's not helpful to watch your friend do things over and over again that are going to hurt them and those around them, and you just remain quiet and you just be okay with it, or even sometimes cheer it on because you think it's cool. It's not helpful for us to, to look at other people's sin and allow them to remain in that sin because sin will always lead to death. There's nothing cool about sin and destruction and death. So in this moment, what is needed is for her to step up in her God-given role and say, no, let's trust in God and his protection. And instead, she goes along. And then lies. We justify, rationalize, and minimize our sin. I don't know about you, but um, I have an inner lawyer that uh, Paul Tripp talks about that goes to my defense every time I'm maybe saying something that's not fully true. Uh, it's okay to say it that way, or it's okay to embellish this, or but just because, you know, that there's this inner lawyer that comes to my own defense that rationalizes in my own mind of why I'm going to say what I'm going to say, even though I know it's not true. You know, if, if there, hypothetically, if there was a top 10 list of sin that God was going to like write on some stone, I think he might write, thou shalt not lie. It's a big deal. But, you know, the next morning when our kids wake up after Halloween, and they're like, daddy, where's my candy? Like, oh, a gremlin came, ate it. Oh, we use sarcasm so much to mask over our sin. We say it with a smile on our face and act like it's funny. I do it all the time, by the way. But is that causing my daughters to trust me? I mean, I think we do this often in marriage. I mean, do you know how many times I've been to lunch with a guy and we're ordering and he orders like a burger and fries and he's like, don't tell my wife. Really? You're going to cheat on your wife with a burger? <laughs> but we do. We, we hold these like little secrets and these little sins and we just kind of write them off and rationalize them as if it's not a big deal. Your boss comes in. Hey, did you send those emails? Did you make those phone calls? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they haven't responded yet. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with them. Instead of just being like, man, I, I dropped the ball on that one. I'll get to that right now. I mean, these dumb little lies just marked as sarcasm. We don't realize that, that this sin will lead us to death. It's going to lead us to the people around us not trusting our words. And so out of the same mouth, we're saying all this sarcasm. We're also telling somebody that they need to believe Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because he's the only way, truth, and life. Doesn't it tip the scales to people not believing our words? Speak out of one side of our mouth, sarcasm, the other side of our mouth, we're trying to tell somebody that something's true. 
I mean, women, I hope that if you saw a live wire by your husband that he didn't see, that you would yell. And that's what she needed to do in that moment. But in spite of her going along with her husband, in spite of her being unhelpful and following this lie, you know what God does? God protects her. God blesses Abraham. He afflicts Pharaoh who takes Sarah as his own wife. And then he sends him off with livestock and treasures. And you know what God does in that moment? He doubles down on his promise. Because God is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. And so, in Genesis 13, he says again, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. In Genesis 14 through 16, God protects Abraham and his family over and over again, Sarah included. And God makes this covenant with Abraham that he signs in blood. One of the most beautiful, epic covenants that we see in scripture, the Abrahamic covenant, where God says, I am going to fulfill what I'm going to do in spite of you. In this covenant, God completes the entirety of the covenant because Abraham falls asleep and the covenant stands. Your offspring will be the fulfillment of this promise. Guess what? Sarah's the only option at this point. A barren woman who's old in age. This leads to the second failure. Distrust in God. Now at this point, just so we know, we're going to go quick, but things begin to unravel very quickly at this point of the story. Genesis 16.2, she says, Sarah, I cannot have kids, so take my servant, Hagar. You know, distrusting God will cause us to do ridiculous things. And those things will have epic consequences. Everything in the Bible, everything in this book is true for the children of God. And often we distrust what it says, somehow thinking that our circumstance is the exception to the rule. I would say, I'm going to make a bold statement here, but I would say that every single person in this room has at one point thought that they were the exception to the rule. That they thought, I know God's word says this, but it must be different for me. I know God says not to do this or to do this, and but he didn't realize what I was going to be going through. He didn't have this particular thing in mind. Again, rationalize, minimize, justify. And so her distrust in God caused her to do something ridiculous. You know what? I can't fulfill God's promise, so take my servant, Hagar. You know, I don't have enough time to touch on this. I'm going to put a picture up really quick. I want you to just see how a decision like this could impact the world for generations. That Sarah sending her servant into her husband's bed has caused a generation through Ishmael that has become the people of Islam. And that fulfilling through the promise that God had said through Sarah that that was the birth of Isaac and then through his lineage, David, which is Christianity and Judaism. And guess where all the wars that we're watching on TV are coming from? A decision to distrust God 
in a split second. And what does this do? Well, here's the third failure. It wells up inside of Sarah this bitter jealousy. So in Genesis 16, 3, it says she detested her servant and her husband, Abraham. Bitterness always destroys the vessel that it's stored in. Do I need to say that again? Bitterness always destroys the vessel that it's stored in. Often we go through life and people hurt us and things happen and bitterness and jealousy well up inside of us. And somehow, somehow we think that that bitterness is hurting the other person. But it will always destroy you. And it will affect those around you in ways that you've never even dreamed. You don't know how often I meet with people on a weekly basis that have had marriages destroyed, friendships destroyed, family relationships destroyed, um, all sorts of things going on in their lives, uh, children, relationships with their children or with their parents destroyed because of bitterness and anger and malice and jealousy that has welled up in their heart and that they've held onto for years and years and years. Don't do it. Don't allow bitterness to destroy you because it is not what God intends for you or those relationships. This is where forgiveness comes into place. But you can't just say, I forgive them, but I still hate them. That's not forgiveness. I forgive them, but I'm never talking to them again. That's not forgiveness. Now, I know people have done some really hard and heavy and terrible things to some of the people in this room. But bitterness can cause all sorts of destruction in your own heart. It will destroy the vessel that it is stored in. And this leads to the fourth failure, harshness. Bitterness, a lot of times, will, will overflow out of that vessel through harshness. Sarai dealt harshly with her. I don't know exactly what this harshness looked like, but I'm sure that it was bad to the point where she but where Hagar had to get sent away and run away. Lies, distrust in God, bitterness, jealousy, all the sin that builds up inside of us is gonna either lead to explosion or implosion. But it's gonna hurt. It's gonna lead to harshness. So in parenting, when that bitterness dwells in us, it comes out in words maybe, in actions, in entitlement, I often get frustrated at my girls because they inconvenience my life and what I want to do. That stuff just, just bubbles up with when we, when we least expect it, by the way. You'd be having a pretty good day. Then all of a sudden you get that phone call or you go into that situation and then boom, you explode and the people around you are like, what is happening? Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Because there's a sin inside of us that we're not dealing with, that we're just sweeping under the rug and then we're tripping all the time going, what's going on? We can't leave this stuff undealt with. Youth, I really want to encourage you in this moment because I think, 
We live in a culture where entitlement is running rampant, meaning like you believe that you deserve everything. And so you're owed by everybody everything that you want. And, and in this, what it does is it causes you to be harsh with those around you. You're either harsh with your siblings, you're harsh with your parents, or you're harsh with the, your friends around you. It will destroy your relationships, I promise you. It will destroy them. And so here's the rest of the story. I'm going to just breeze through this. Genesis 18, Abraham was 99, Sarah was 90. God sends three messengers. And you know what they say? Hey, in case you missed it the first time, Sarah's going to be the mom. I feel like you maybe didn't catch that the first time around, so we're going to just call it out. Sarah's the mom. You know what Sarah's doing at this point? She's in the tent, like hiding behind the door, listening into the conversation with these three messengers and Abraham. And they say, Sarah's going to be the mom, and you know what she does? Ha! She laughs. And it wasn't one of those like, oh, this is awesome and epic, so I'm going to laugh because I'm so happy. No, it was like, you guys are crazy. God responds in that very moment. You know what he says? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there any situation, is there any circumstance in this life, in this world, that's too hard for the Lord to overcome? What are you believing today? What are you believing in your life right now that you believe is too hard for the Lord to overcome? And you sit there and you look at him and you laugh and you go, God, you can't handle this. You can't help me overcome this. You can't do this in my life. That was Sarah. And what does Sarah do? She goes, okay, okay. Genesis 21, Sarah gives birth to Isaac and becomes the many generational great-grandmother to the Messiah, Jesus whom God's promise will be fulfilled that he will bless the world through Abraham and through Sarah. I think every single person in this room can relate to something about Sarah's life and her failures. And here are just a couple of quick lessons that I want us to take away from this. Number one, God uses broken people to change the world. Every story that we see in here Every person that we see in here, minus Jesus, is a broken person. Every story of anybody in our contemporary world today, I mean, we look at like these, these celebrity pastors, they're all broken people. I mean, they're people like Billy Graham who we can look up to, but realize that he had his flaws. I mean, you go throughout history and you start saying uh, John Wesley and Spurgeon and, and uh, Jonathan Edwards and you start throwing these big names out there. Guess what? They were all sinners. But God uses broken people to change the world. And even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Even when we don't believe that it can be done, God remains faithful to his promises to his children. He is a promise keeper. And the last thing is that God is always in control. 
And in situations like Sarah sat in where she is barren and she is old and there's this word that's spoken over her that she's going to be the mother of, 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 of the Messiah, she failed to remember that God is in control. I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, there is not one molecule in our entire universe that is outside God's control. If that is true, then God ceases to be God. He holds the world together. Everything was made through him and by him and for him. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's the creator of all and he is the sustainer of all, including your life. So no matter what you've been through or no matter what you are going through right now, God is in control. And the invitation is to trust him. And I know if you're here today and you don't have a personal, intimate, interactive relationship with God, then this doesn't make sense. And I want you to know that God loves you and he wants a relationship with you. This isn't the practice of religion. This isn't three steps to a better you. This is that there is a God who is for you. And if God is for you, nothing can be against you. And so, every person in this room, I think, can take away from this that God uses broken people to change the world. And even when we are faithless, God is faithful. And God is always in control. And so for weeks, you've been looking at this picture. Weeks and weeks and weeks. Anybody wonder what this picture is? It's been up there for the last, like, what, three weeks or so? This is a picture of a Japanese art known as kintsugi, and I'm sure it's probably pronounced differently than that. But what happens, pottery is very fragile. I don't know if you know anything about pottery, but it can break pretty easily. And often when pottery breaks, what do you do with it? Throw it away. It's worthless, right? Pottery is used to store things, and you put things in. and, and, And once it's broken... It becomes useless. Well, what the Japanese started to do is they started to fix broken pottery with a lacquer that was inlaid with gold, actual gold dust. And by doing so, by putting back the pottery, putting it back together, all these broken pieces back together, by inlaying it with this gold lacquer, it made the piece infinitely more valuable and it accentuated the brokenness. This is a picture of what the good news of Jesus does for us. We don't come to the table with all of our brokenness and think that once we are saved that all of a sudden that our story is not our story anymore. What God does is he puts back the broken pieces and, and those, that brokenness is meant to glorify him. So when you look at this, it makes us infinitely more valuable because of what God has done for us. He puts us back together and those, those cracks all tell a story. Oh yeah, that crack right there, that's when, when I, I nicked the, the, the corner of the... the the, the countertop, and that piece fell off. Oh, this is when that five-year-old dropped me. Oh, this is, this is when the dog, you know, bumped into me and I dropped the whole thing. That's for pottery, but for us, it's, hey, this is when I went through this season and I experienced this brokenness. This is when this happened in my life. 
This is when I went through this addiction. This is when I went through this hurt. This is when I went through this relationship issue. What God does is he brings restoration and hope to our brokenness. And he gives us a story. And that story is meant to glorify his name. This is the beauty of Kintsugi, but this is the beauty of the gospel. So what is our response to this? What is Sarah's response to the story? That's what Shannon came up and read in Genesis 21. Her laughter changed from, ha, God, you can't do this. I'm barren. Like, there's no way this is happening. To laughter saying, everybody's going to look. Everybody's going to see that God fulfilled his promise. How do I know that everybody's going to look and see that God is going to fulfill his promise? Guess what? We're sitting here talking about it. You think she was thinking about us when we were sitting there? But her story has now brought us to a place where we're talking about the Messiah Jesus that came through her lineage and through her brokenness. Because God redeemed her story and God will and can redeem your story. You have a story to share. It's a story of brokenness, but it's also a story of redemption. That God has placed us back together and he has made us whole for his name and for his glory and that makes us infinitely more valuable as sons and daughters of the king. You know what a son and a daughter of the king is called? A prince and a princess. And I know that's just kind of fairy tale language but that's actually biblical language. That we are now infinitely more valuable because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I think the problem is often we belittle how God will use our story. We either think we're not good enough, we're too sinful, we're not gifted like other people. We begin to play this comparison game, like, oh, well, their story has, like, you know, all this stuff in it, but my story is, ah, it's just kind of lame. Your story is your story, and God gave you that story to bring him glory. Don't belittle your story, and don't over-magnify your story. It's the story that God has given you for his glory. Share your story. So when you're asking the question, can God use me? Will God ever use me? Have I done too little or have I failed too much? I want you to know that God has given you your story to lead people to Jesus. You know, we're coming up on Christmas pretty quickly. Already seen some of you putting up your Christmas decorations. Crazy. It's not Thanksgiving yet. In this season... It is known that people are most receptive to hear the good news about Jesus. And we're far too quick to invite people to come to a church service than we are to share with them the story that God has given us. My encouragement to you is that you begin to share your story with those around you. Because God has redeemed you from brokenness and he's inlaid that brokenness with gold so that his name may be glorified. Share your story. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. God, as we sit here in this room, I I know that there are 
our sins that are coming even to our minds of why we feel like we're unworthy, why we feel like we don't deserve your love, why we don't deserve your forgiveness, why you can't use our story. We believe we're too young. We believe we're too old. We believe that we're not good enough. We believe that we're not gifted enough. We believe, we believe that we don't have the right words. God, I pray right now through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would ignite in us a passion to make your name great. That just like Sarah's story, that we would allow you to do a work in the worst of circumstances, in the worst of situations, in the worst of our brokenness, to piece us back together through the power of Jesus, not by our effort, not by us trying to earn it, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would knit us back together, and then that story, Lord, would be used to glorify your name. Father, we love you. We pray, Lord, that you would transform us to be more like you. That you would use our story to bring people from death to life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to take communion. There's some stations in the front, on the sides, and in the back. And as we're taking communion, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Every one of us, whether you believe it or not, has brokenness in our lives. We have something that holds us back from sharing the good news of Jesus with the people around us. So my hope in this time is that we would come before the Lord and that we would lay down that brokenness, whatever that is, at his feet. He is far bigger than whatever you're thinking it you have in your mind. And when you take the bread, this bread represents his body that has been broken for us and that covers any amount of brokenness or failures that you have in your life. What we do is we dip it in the juice and that juice symbolizes the blood of Jesus that has been poured out for you for your forgiveness, for your transformation. So when we take this, I want you to have the picture of Kintsugi in your mind and remember that God has knitted you back together because of the power of Jesus and that this would empower you to have a desire to leave this place and go share his good news with every man, woman, and child.